0: Hello, everyone. I'm Joseph Long, and this is episode four of This is the Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Enlightening conversations with special guests about music, film, art, family, history, and the outdoors. With a cup of reheated coffee from the top of a Pacific Northwest mountain, I'm Joseph Long, and this is the Long Version. So first of all, the good news, because there's bad news coming up. The good news is that as of last week, this is the long version. This podcast has been accepted into the iTunes store now. I don't know if this is a prestigious thing or not. I know there's thousands of podcasts and everything. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. But you know what? It's a big deal to me. And I'm happy about it. And some of you have expressed happiness about it as well. And a bunch of people in the Netherlands have expressed happiness about it. And some people in the United States as well and from a few other countries. So not a massive amount, but enough to make me feel kind of good and enough to uh, drive me to do another episode. So what's ahead today is uh, I'm going to talk about a little bit about one of my very favorite and most wonderful bands, especially with everything happening in this pandemic. Um, They are not personal friends of mine or our families, and I do not have them on this podcast, which is saddening. Um, But Mates of State have been a very special uh, band to me and to Becca for a long time. We've seen them a couple of times. And they've been doing these live shows on Instagram that are just so lovely and lively. And they have their three uh, girls on there of varying ages, uh, including a toddler that is every bit as independent as an independent child, an adult should be. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them and possibly read an old blog post that I wrote about them a long time ago and still seems relevant today. Um... I'm also going to, uh, share a conversation that I have with, uh, my daughter, my 12 year old, and you've met her. She's a delightful person, although she likes to argue with me and my heart sings a little louder when she outsmarts me again. It's a strange sort of pride, um, i'll also be of course covering some science and history and religion and some poetry and just all that other stuff so if you're still listening then you kind of know what's have an idea of what's coming thank you for being here That is my brother, Jeremy Long, musician producer, and most importantly, my brother, who called me a few days ago and said, I just emailed you something. If you want to take a listen, um, if you want to use it, you can. I mean, you don't have to or anything. I listened to it once and I called him back and I was, you idiot. Why would I not use this? Of course I'm going to use it. It might take me a few episodes to figure out exactly how I'm going to work this in, um, but it's definitely going to be a prominent, recurring musical motif um, in this. Tell me that's not just catchy. Jeremy, thank you. Back to Mates of State. (coughs) Surprise! This is not Mates of State. This is Jeremy Long doing an instrumental version of the 15-second song you just heard. But I am going to talk about Mates of State. It's actually a blog post I wrote 10 years ago, uh, right after Beck and I had gone to see them in Portland uh, with my brother Johnny and his fiancée, Melani, who were two weeks away from their wedding and who are still very much favorite people of ours. We love them so much. Um, Anyway, Mates of State. Keep in mind, uh, this was written in 2010, so if there's any references that seem a little bit dated, then it was written a decade ago. Mates of State is a husband-wife duo who have been together since 1997. Intensely romantic and danceable, counterpoint harmonies and trade-off vocals, a Lilliputian drum set next to his lanky frame, her short, blonde bangs dancing away on keys... I started thinking as I watched them frolic and melody the night away, they've been together since 97, married since 2001, and you see Jason thudding away on the skins, looking across stage in full view of audience at his wife and ma- and bandmate, Corey, and smiling knowing full well they're performing middle of a public performance but yet the glances they slip each other have a spirited intimacy that feels occasionally like it's just the two of them singing in their living room for themselves she gleefully gleefully bouncing almost shyness a self-conscious sincerity that rises above performance grins back head bobbing they look like they like each other How much of it is mythology? How much enjoyment of this performance do people get? Do I get from the backstory of them being together for 15 years and still being in love, still making music together? If they divorce tomorrow, how would that affect their career? The mythology would not be there. You can't make something come true necessarily by pretending that it's true, but... I do believe that you can help perpetuate and reinforce. You can strengthen and help to create a mythology that turns to reality. If you don't start with a dream, then where do you have to go from there? Many people, when they're in love at the beginning, start with a dream, and then they listen to too many people. And they let other voices become louder than the person they were in love with, and they forget to hold hands and steal glances at each other in public. And that dream, that future mythology, becomes today's sad reality. But sometimes, no not sometimes, always, dreams need to be propped up. The bridge of reality is a tenuous one. Reality can change at any moment. It's not like reality is a rock-solid concept that is never changing. Everybody has somebody they know who has gone through something tragic in a split second, where reality changes just like that in a moment. Reality is a fluid concept, And just like you, just like Pavlov, just like you Pavlov reinforce character traits that you want to sustain by making them habits, you do the same thing with your most important relationships. You treat yourself with respect and you mirror that to others. You put yourself down and you will create an image of yourself as somebody weak who will end up resenting others for being stronger and you will be unable to pursue your dreams. Next is the Rocky paragraph, and then I'm done with the archetypal, inspirational stuff. But what you do, you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, I am strong enough. I can do this. Whatever it may be. And you may have doubt, you may waver, but you remind, mer- but you remind yourself that you can. You never, ever say, I have the potential to do this. No, you say, I can do this, even if you can't in the moment. You say it because you have to believe that it is possible. There's a time to be realistic, but there's also a time to say, I'm going to believe in this with everything, and it is going to happen. And you make it happen. You set the foundation for success by believing first and foremost. Then you put in the work. You keep the dream, and you work to keep the dream alive. I promise you, world, I will not make a horribly designed, inspirational, photographic poster out of this. Unless, of course, it would be wildly popular and make me a lot of money, which has also been a dream in the past. But Anyway, you keep the dream alive. You prop the dream up sometimes by putting on a performance. That's not a bad thing. If your entire life is performance, that is probably a bad thing, where everything you do is entirely for other people's benefit. But when you reinforce reality with a dream, you have the opportunity to merge the two. So going back to Mates of State, who, by the way, did play the greatest song ever for the actor. Listen to it, please. I beg you. Mates of State have been together a long time. They have a performance to put on every time they tour. And there may be a merging of their public and their private world. They probably go on stage sometimes where they've been arguing and have said mean things to each other or maybe just not have been very nice. And then they're on stage and they have a show to put on. And part of that show is giving a performance that includes them as the lead characters. We love a romance. We love a love story. Great music plus real life love story equals rock star romance. Great story. At this point, Jason and Corey's story may be interwoven into the fabric of both their reality and their stage personas. Maybe it's tough to know. There's an old Jewish custom. I do not remember any particular details, except for the main idea that for the first one or two weeks after marriage, the couple would spend each night at the residence of a different family member or friend. And the thinking was that it would reinforce the notion that their marriage was about more than just themselves. That by joining themselves together, their relationship transcended the two of them and was creating a web of relationships that once created they would have no right to undo sort of like a, a positive guilt trip if there is such a thing the idea of spending my first couple of weeks of marriage with any family members is kind of a rotten thought but i do buy into that concept a lot that you owe other people something by virtue of the decision you made you made to be with somebody That you create an accountability system that doesn't let you just on a whim decide that you're going to try something else or try someone else out. You create a world where you are beholden to carry through on a promise you made. The beautiful thing is that by letting yourself trust other people enough to recognize that you just can't trust yourself in the moment, your life becomes not only more safe and secure, but it also offers, if you choose to accept that offer, the chance to float that dream aloft higher and higher to hold those dreams in the air and to remember that hey there may be days where i'm putting on a performance because i don't feel like being with this person right now i imagine in a joint counseling session that Corey and jason would acknowledge that there are days where they don't feel like being in the same room or the same house or the same stage with each other i think that most if not any married couple who's been together for a long time married or unmarried can and should be able to say without any sense of guilt yeah, I need my space. Sometimes I don't feel like being around you. That's okay. Sometimes you're together in the moment, even when you don't feel like it, like mates of state. They have created a world where they are accountable, where they have a sort of compact with their fans. And by perpetuating that mythology, they have helped, I would think, to create a reality. The world needs more mates of states and more mates of state, period. If they were ever to split, this will be one of the saddest pieces I've ever written. And as a parenthetical, um, again, a reminder that I wrote this 10 years ago, and they have three lovely children and are still dancing and making music. And it makes my heart so happy to know that. Anyway, end of parenthetical back to the piece from 10 years ago. So the multitude of gorgeous possibilities in every day exists with a person. That person that at one point you chose, a never-ending opportunity to be ceaselessly inventive and creative by virtue of that one choice, by virtue of being beholden and by choosing to be with that one person. I am a strong believer in the importance of creative limitations, of the power in setting creative restrictions to help become a better artist so that you're not constantly having to make a million decisions. And being with someone is exactly like that. I don't wake up every day and wonder what person I should be with. I am with one person, and I have an unlimited reservoir of ideas and moments to build and share and invent with that person. That person that I chose to be with yesterday and today and tomorrow. We will take our ideas and our voices, not quite in the blended harmonies of mates, (laughs) And we will sail in our Zeppelin together through the seas, through the storms, through the skies, through the days and weeks, and sometimes we will do so alone with each other and sometimes with many people surrounding. But always, we will look for those opportunities to steal a glance at each other. That is meant for that one other person. It may be intercepted by the world, and that's fine, because the world needs to be inspired, and the worlds and the world needs to see people in love. Thank you, Mates of State. We love you back to the present. I cannot argue strongly enough. This may sound like one of the more strange things to say to go spend more time on social media. But if you don't have an Instagram account, then it's worth it to just go set one up and wait for their next live performance on there that they do as a family. Your soul will feel so thankful to you for allowing that to happen. So, find Mates of State on Instagram, or maybe they're doing performances somewhere else, but whatever you need to do, just find them performing somewhere with their three girls. It's a magical, beautiful, and sometimes funny um, experience to have. So, thank you again, Mates of State, for bringing beauty and music to the world. And who knows, maybe someday they'll be on this podcast. So my guest today is somebody that some of you might be familiar with, a 12-year-old, uh, my daughter, Magdalena. Thank you for being here again. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to talk with you about a handful of things. Um, there's a few areas of parenting that I have not yet mastered that I wanted to talk to you, get a little bit of advice on. Uh, I'm also going to talk to you about Hunger Games, um, about uh, some television and Film and what's happening in the world, etc. So why don't we just jump in? First of all, what did you think about the ending to Homeland without giving any spoilers away?
1: I thought it wrapped up really well.
0: That was a test to see if you would tell the truth. You didn't see that. You, didn't, you, you haven't seen any of Homeland. You don't know that. Have you seen Homeland?
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe not.
0: When would you have seen it? Because I try to make sure... You don't you... know
1: what I do in bed after you guys go to bed.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, I know that I'm up all hours of the night, and I've never seen you up watching Homeland. But it is definitely a show that everybody, including you, should see at some point. And I'm pretty sure you haven't. But I'm a little bit sad this week. Did you notice that I was a little extra sad this week? No. Oh. Well, why weren't you paying attention to my emotions?
1: Well, I just didn't notice you were sad.
0: Oh. Well, I wasn't totally sad because it's just a television program and please. Wait,
1: so you're saying it ends sad.
0: Okay, I was trying to preemptively address that before. Wait, you, you just me. Okay. spoiled it. No, 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 no. I did not spoil anything, okay? I'm not a hypocrite as far as that goes. I meant that I'm sad that it's over. I am saying nothing oh. about the ending. The only thing that I will say. Are you sure? I'm proceeding very cautiously here. I'm simply going to say that I think it is a wonderful uh, action drama. Over its run, it had some up and down. I agree. It had some up and down points, but I think overall they did a great job. Carrie Matheson, played by Claire Danes, is one of the great action heroes um, on television, as far as I'm concerned. Yep. And I... <laughs> you haven't seen it. You don't know that. Okay, look me in the eyes and tell me right now, because I'm very good at it. I, I'll be able to tell if you're lying or not. Have you seen Homeland? Yes. You just lied straight to my face. Have you really seen it? Yes. You haven't? Yes. No, but you would have robbed me of the chance to see it with you, because that is one of the top 11 shows that I've wanted to see with you someday. Sorry. Okay, then tell me right now how it ends.
1: I don't want to spoil it for people who are listening.
0: Okay, guess what? That was a double test, and you just passed part of it. I wanted to see if you would actually give away a spoiler of how it ends if you had seen it. And you didn't, so you pass that part of things. Okay,
1: if I tell you I haven't seen it, then can I watch Outbreak or Taken?
0: Why do you want— Those are two completely different movies. I don't even know. Okay, I
1: mostly just want to see Outbreak because Johannes wants to see it.
0: So, wait a second. The reason that you want to see a movie is not so much because you want to see it, but because your brother wants to see it. Yes, there was a uh, psychology experiment done a while back. I don't remember what it was called, but basically it was measuring people people's happiness. And the way that they were – the study went is they were comparing uh, people's incomes, like how much money they made. And I'm skipping ahead to the end, but basically they found that people were actually happier when they were making less money, but to know that they were making more than their neighbors – so they would actually rather make less money as long as it was more than their neighbors than make more money, but maybe less than their friends and neighbors. So you're saying <laughs> that you simply want to see a movie because your brother wants to see it and it would make you happy. Yes. To see something that he hasn't. Yes. Your younger brother by, by three years. Yes. The Germans have a word for that. Do you know what it's called?
1: Something like Schadenfreude.
0: Yes, that's close enough pronunciation. Um, Schadenfreude is is how I've always said it. Um, But reveling in the misfortune of others. Is that accurate here? Yes. I kind of feel like it is. So what if I said, okay, we'll watch Outbreak. You and your mother and your brother and me together. Would you be happy about that? Not as much. (laughs) So, so you, you would be the happiest watching. What kind of person are you? I don't know. Well, know thyself. That's the third time I've said that this week. Okay. You've been reading a book, a series of books. Tell me about the, you've been reading two books. Tell me about the two books you've been reading. Which two? You know, which two, I know you always have a stack going, but tell me which two, You, you don't, you know what I'm talking about.
1: Little Women and Brown Girl Dreaming.
0: Okay, yes. So you have three books going: um, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women and Jacqueline Woodson Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming. And okay, so there's the third book. That's what I was building up to. What third book? You know exactly no, what I I'm don't. talking. You've been obsessed with it every time.
1: But I'm not currently we go, reading it.
0: Okay, we go looking. Must you get so hung up? You asked what I'm currently reading. When I said currently, you just finished the one that you know I'm talking about. You're purposely dodging the subject. The, okay. one, the one that every time your mother and I are looking for you, and where did Magdalena go? And you're hiding behind some door or in a closet or somewhere so you can get a few more pages in of, of what okay. book. Okay,
1: I have been kind of obsessed with the Hunger Games. I've heard of them. And I kind of took a long break from reading Little Women to read the second book.
0: Okay, note, this is an audio podcast, so it's not possible for the audience to see the, the grin that she has on her face right now. Um, it's a very smug, self-satisfied little grin, and I don't know why. Don't, don't you feel sad about ditching um, Little Women?
1: I'm not ditching it. I'm still reading it. But
0: you I took- just get
1: to savor it more.
0: You are just masterful at twisting these ideas around and making it sound as if I'm accusing you of something and like these things are conscious, deliberate choices that you've made. At and what I point... also
1: like reading them because Johannes really, really wants to read them.
0: So we're getting back to this whole sort of Schadenfreudish idea of wanting to do something partially because you want to, but also because it brings you joy to know that somebody else that you care about can't. Yes. Who are you? Who are you? Me. No, I that was more of a rhetorical question. When at what point in your life do you feel you started being able to successfully um debate and out argue and out logic me? Is it I mean it happens occasionally now? My whole life. Not your whole life. It's not happened your whole life.
1: Yes. I think it has.
0: Okay, well, let me ask you this. What were you doing on June 19, 2009? You would have been almost two years old. Guess what?
1: What was I doing? You don't remember. No, I'm seen a few
0: remember. Prove my point. No, you can't turn my question back on me. Okay,
1: what was I, I doing? May
0: have, I may have taught you Socratic discourse, but that doesn't mean you can just turn every weapon I have in my arsenal back on me. That's not cool. When I teach you something, the rule is... That you have to wait fifteen years before weaponizing it against me. Okay, I may have forgotten to tell you that, but that's that's the idea. When I teach you something, that's that's Well, a tool. actually, you
1: didn't teach it to me, Uncle Jeremy did.
0: Okay, your uncle. Ger- <laughs> this this is possibly the uncoolest thing you've ever done. You have just robbed me. <laughs> you you, no, you know how special philosophy is to me and being able to introduce you introduce to you and now you're you're yanking that away from me and saying that your uncle Jeremy ta- he's a, he's a musician yeah he's a musician and a music producer he's not <sighs> okay I love talking philosophy with him but that is so not cool to as if he taught you that he did so please retract what you've said I don't okay you know what I if you are unable to retract what you said, then I may have to ban you from reading the third book in The Hunger Games for the next 25 days. Okay, years. I
1: retract what I said.
0: Okay, I think that was a wise course of action. Know when to retreat. Have I ever told you if, the story okay, of Hannibal? Okay, I'll
1: retract it if I can start reading the third book on Sunday.
0: Okay, now the reason you have the third book is why? Because you specifically asked if you could order the book a couple days ago, and I said no... Mostly out of solidarity with not wanting to burden the shipping services with having to send your stupid little book through the, through the, <laughs> I was just seeing if you're paying attention. It's not stupid. Do you know that I'm the one that introduced you to the Hunger Games? Give me credit for that at least. Yes. Okay. I, I loved it. And my cousin-in-law, um, that would be Holly Stagg, is the one who introduced long ago the Hunger Games to me. Um so i think do you think it's important to remember where you get recommendations from? Yes, correct it is it is important um what do you think makes the hunger game such the hunger games such a compelling story? I
1: think that characters are really interesting
0: why what makes them interesting? I mean like are they, they all have... really likable
1: no. Um, like, the main character, Katniss, isn't always super likable. Um, yeah, they, the characters are really interesting because they have different backgrounds and, yeah.
0: Has reading The Hunger Games made you more interested or less interested in going to archery as a professional career someday?
1: More interested. Okay. And I think the setting is really good.
0: Do you know that there's a very good movie? Um, some might call it a guilty pleasure, but it's called um, The Long Kiss Goodnight, I believe. And it's yep. with uh, a woman named Gina Davis. And the director who did it, I believe it was Rennie Harlan, who might have been, you know what? No, it wasn't. Unimportant. Anyway, she was sort of an act it's the best action movie she ever did. And there's at least three movies. You saw her in Thelma and Louise. A couple what? a couple Thelma and Louise.
1: What's
0: that? Are you serious? You don't remember watching Thelma and Louise? The baseball no. movie? Women? No. Tom Hanks? No. You don't? I I cannot I believe mean. I just I cannot believe I just did this. This is probably the most controversial Thing that I've done. Wait, are
1: you talking about A League of Their Own? Yes,
0: that's, I just confused the two. I cannot believe I just did that. That is, this is the most mortifying thing that I have done in the last 45 minutes. I didn't mean to say Thelma and Louise. The director of Thelma and Louise, I believe was Ridley, Ridley Scott, I think, who did a, a number of other great films. Um, The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis, who also starred in Thelma and Louise and A League of Their Own, um, Turns out that she actually has a gift for archery. And she actually competed in, I believe, the U.S. Olympic Trials a while back, which is kind of cool. I think it's pretty neat when people sort of late in life discover, or later in life discover, that they're really good at something like archery. So if you decide to go um, into archery, then I just want you to know that I will fully support that, maybe. Thank you. You're welcome. Have you seen any films lately that you've enjoyed?
1: Yes, Contagion.
0: Okay, another controversial topic involving your brother, who did not watch it. And, and
1: this wasn't as recent, but World War Z.
0: Okay, so we and, have two. Um, so we have two films about viruses. Tell me, kind of contrast and compare the two of those. How did? I mean, were they terrifying at any level?
1: Well, I think Contagion was way more realistic because World War Z is about zombies. But, yeah, World War Z was definitely scarier. And I probably. I probably liked World War Z a tiny bit more.
0: Tell me a life lesson you learned from each film. Hmm.
1: In World War Z, paying attention.
0: How so? And
1: I know you want me to say listening to your parents.
0: Oh, I had no idea that's where you were going with it. What? Why would that be?
1: Because you keep telling me. <laughs> and what, I,
0: Could you elaborate on that a little bit more?
1: Because, um, in World War Z, the zombies—you—if you get bitten, then you're infected. And so you have to be very watchful and alert.
0: Oh, and mm. I mean, are there any like fa- fathers yes. in the film that are really on their feet and right prepared? Yes. And I mean, do you feel like there are children listening to their fa- yes. <laughs> listening to their father? Yes, that sounds like a very wise film. Um, and what about Contagion? Did any what sort of lessons could you take from that? Um,
1: hmm. maybe,
0: um, okay. If you are, if you are unable on your feet to come up with some sort of valuable life lesson that you could take away from contagion, then we're going to have to go back to just watching the Muppet movie every week. No, I'm trying to think. While you're thinking, let me help prompt your thinking along by asking, um, um, so obviously I'm the parent, you, I am so happy for you in so many ways, and you have been gifted with just really lovely, um, parents, but yet I know, uh, of course, of which I'm half, um, But you know what? No matter what skill level you have with something, then you can always improve. So I would like for you, while you're also thinking with the other part of your brain on a life lesson you could get from Contagion, I'd like for you to simultaneously think of some advice you have for me as a dad.
1: Uh, Okay, well, I thought of the life lesson for Contagion.
0: Okay, rolling Uh, back to that.
1: The importance of working together to solve a problem.
0: Okay. Okay. How, how so, without giving any spoilers
1: Well, more minds think better than one
0: and what if it's a bunch of what if what if it's a bunch of um a bunch of second graders what if there's eighteen second graders um versus uh Elon Musk and Bill Gates? Well, Do you think they would solve a problem? I mean, maybe no, some types s- of problems. trust the
1: smarter people more. But uh, I forgot what I was going to say.
0: I'm sorry I interrupted.
1: Um, oh, don't always listen to um, people who get a lot of views on something because they could just be wanting to get a lot of attention and make money.
0: I I appreciate how you how you said that. For example, I may get fewer listens on here on this podcast than some people might. Um, although and I I, I wasn't actually gonna say this on the air, but personally, besides the I, I've gotta say that I'm very happy with the Netherlands right now. Um, thank you, Aaron, my 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 friend in In the Netherlands, um, for sharing this podcast around, um, I got an email last week that said that within the parenting category, then this was ranked number 33rd, um, by listen. So a big extra thank you to everybody in the Netherlands who has listened to this. I think that's kind of, I don't know how all the algorithms and metrics and statistics and stuff you probably know more about that than I do. Do you?
1: probably.
0: Probably true. Anyway, but I thought it, it did make my heart a little bit warmer to hear that. Um, I thought it was kind of cool. So, thank you. Thank you to the Netherlands. Um, now, back to what you were saying. Oh, advice you have for me as a dad. Okay,
1: what do you, what I know do you I've said this, but don't do super long talks.
0: Okay, so, like, when I'm talking about something really exciting...
1: No, like when we do something that you don't want us to do.
0: Oh, like when you do something horrible? Yes. Okay, then you're saying you would like me to take more time to go slower and explain more fully? No. How?
1: Say what you're going to say quickly.
0: What is one word you could use to describe? to, To tell me how to say things more quickly, what is one word you could use? Starts with a B. R what? E Bre- brief, <laughs> brief. I was gonna say brevity. Ah, you just came up with even a shorter word with the first three letters I gave you. I, I, it's really difficult to get sort of out. Um,
1: wait, no, I think brief.
0: I was gonna say, does not
1: I, I think an I comes before a brief.
0: You're <laughs> Okay, you know what? If you hadn't just said that, then most people would not even have noticed that. So, this is starting to become more of a, of a thing where I get called out on these on these little things. That is maddening, but yet I, I have to admit it does make me a tiny, bit, I'm sort of proud to know that you pay attention to the little nuances of language and syntax and grammar. So, just to be super brief here, you would like me when I am talking with my children with our children about something of something of importance that needs to be addressed. You would like me to be shorter about it. Yes. I will work on that. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Would you be willing to come back on sometime? Yes. Okay. Well, I appreciate having you. You remain one of my favorite people in the universe. Maddening though you can be, you are definitely your father's daughter as well as your mother's. Um, So thank you for being here, and um, I'll see you upstairs. Okay. Bye. Love you.
1: Bye.
0: You didn't say love you. Love you. All right. Bye. The buck stops here. I'm not sure that President Harry S. Truman came up with this phrase, but it was a phrase that he helped popularize, and I think the idea is that a person should take responsibility for decisions that land in front of them. And I personally think this is a wonderful idea for other people to practice. Personally, I'm not such a great fan of it because it means that instead of being able to point the finger at other people and throw them under the bus, then I would need to take responsibility for the choices and decisions that I make. For example, if we were looking at why the last conversation with our last interviewee went so long. Then I could say, well, um, I was, I kind of got off on a number of sidetracks and tangents and, and stuff. And then this maddening person that I was interviewing kept calling me on these various mistakes and mispronunciations and various things that I was saying incorrectly. Um, I would much rather throw that person under the bus symbolically, not, of course, literally. I would much rather do that than actually say the buck stops here and take responsibility for it running so long. Now, because it ran so long, we don't have time to do uh, any Greek or Latin this episode. And you might be wondering at some point, if you, Joseph, if you had time to explain everything you just explained, then wouldn't you have had time to use that explanation slash excuse time instead to just simply talk about Greek or Latin? And you might have a point and I fully take responsibility. If, if it was something that I could do something about, then I would take responsibility. But unfortunately the buck does not stop here. And I would like to symbolically throw my daughter under the bus for so maddeningly calling me out and not using appropriate discretion and waiting to correct my many mistakes until we were no longer recording, but she didn't. And now you all have to suffer the consequences. I'm I truly am sorry. If there's anything I could do about it, then I would. But it's it's her fault, and that is where that is how the phrase "throwing somebody under the bus" works. So never ever in your life again think about those two phrases separate from one another because they're two sides of the same the same coin. They work together well. They're a good pair. Don't forgo one at the expense of the other. The buck stops here. Throw somebody under the bus we've had a diverse group of united states presidents over the last couple of centuries of course by diverse what you know that's within the context of being uh, 100% male and almost 100% caucasian and yet i'm interested in the commonalities of one leader to the next and the kinds of things they might have shared. And I'm certain that at different points, each of the presidents was concerned about his legacy. And this is a situation where I don't need to say his or her or anything like that, because it literally every single president we've had has been male, which might make more sense in the context of what I'm about to talk about the Bill of Rights in which we discover, spoiler alert, that women got the right to vote in 1920, 132 years after some very important documents were written guaranteeing all, guaranteeing the rights of man and all those sorts of things. Anyway, this is how I get off on sidetracks and tangents very quickly. So I'm going to impress you with how quickly I'm looping back to what I was saying, which is, of course, to give our current president a compliment, a big compliment. Because I think that every president is concerned at some point about their legacy, their place in history, and where they might rank in the all-time presidential rankings that you know come out and you know i'm sorry andrew johnson if you're ever able from whatever you're doing right now and you're in your grave no disrespect meant um yes you're in the bottom five but there is hope because the bottom five will certainly have some new company um for a long time to come i think soon and I would like to give somebody the chance to be atop a list that he truly deserves to be. And after some extensive research that I've done, I cannot find another president that is better at throwing people under the bus than President Donald J. Trump, and I think he deserves some extra praise for that. I cannot think of a better example of a leader and a president who is so skilled at throwing people under the bus. So anyway, moving on from that to the Bill of Rights, Uh, this is the section where I'm going to talk a little bit about U.S. government and Constitution, and I'm going to pretend that people have actually sent me in these questions as opposed to me writing them myself and then pitching them. Uh, Someday that might happen, but for the time being, in full transparency at about 90%, then I'm going to go ahead and answer these questions about the U.S. Constitution. We'll call this part one. Let's see, are the Bill of Rights kind of the same thing as the Constitution? Well, not exactly. The Bill of Rights are an important part of the Constitution. They're the first 10 amendments and contain essential rights to protect all U.S. citizens. They're also a reality check for the federal government in spelling out what it can't do to its citizens. And our next question, oh, I like this one. So there's 10 amendments in the Constitution, Well, actually, there's 27 now, if I've done my research correctly, which thank you, Wikipedia and Google. There's 27, including one of my favorites, the 19th, which gave women the right to vote, looping back around to that uh, whole idea of there being 45 male presidents. 132 years after the Constitution was ratified, women got the right to vote. Anyway, I'm getting off track already because this is about the Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments. The Constitution is pretty great because its writers wanted to create a foundation of guaranteed rights, but they also realized that it would get added to over the years. They made it very difficult to add new amendments to ensure that only the most important and foundational rights were included, such as the foundational right for, oh, say, women to vote. So 132 years later than... You know, they caught up with that whole idea. So the Bill of Rights is made up of just the original first ten amendments. Next question, is the First Amendment that important? Well, uh, is breathing oxygen important? The First Amendment guarantees your right to worship as you want, or not at all. We call this freedom of religion. It also guarantees some other things I love, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, which means you have the right to speak freely and not be censored or punished by the government for doing so. Of course, it gets more complicated than that, which is why the legal profession makes bank over what constitutes free speech and what doesn't. But that's the basic idea. The U.S. is a country where your right to speak and express yourself freely is among the first rights guaranteed in the Constitution. As if the First Amendment isn't important enough, there's one more part—freedom of the press— This guarantees the right to publish stories and content, including that which is critical of the current government, without fear of being punished or censored. This is huge. The first 44 presidents, despite cantankerous and sometimes antagonistic relationships with the press, and some serious lapses in judgment and prominent examples of hypocrisy, including our beloved Abraham Lincoln— They recognize the importance and the value of a free press as champions and patriots of America. May we hope that the 46th president also be such a person. What's the deal with all the Second Amendment bumper stickers? Well, this is the one about guns, specifically the right to bear arms. For some, this is the most important one, even more so than the rights the First Amendment guarantees. It basically says you have the right to own arms. Interpreting arms is a little like interpreting the Bible. If it was as simple as some people think it to be, then everyone would be on the same page. But arms was written at a time when there weren't automatic, -automatic semi-automatic flamethrowers, nuclear weapons, etc. So protecting and, quote-unquote, not infringing the right to bear arms is a difficult one. Where should the line be drawn? There are a lot of different opinions about regulating arms, in other words, guns but at a basic level, number two says you have the right to keep and bear arms. Is the Third Amendment even necessary? Well, would you like soldiers barging into your home and setting up for the long haul, commandeering your bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchen and television? The colonists knew what that was like. Many had experienced the privacy invasion of British soldiers showing up and expecting to be put up. So the authors of the Constitution wanted to make sure this was a protected right, the right to not have soldiers living in your home. How come I don't see a bunch of trucks with Protect the Fourth Amendment bumper stickers? I don't know. Maybe you're driving on the wrong highways in the wrong states. The Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, and perhaps it's one of those protections that doesn't totally make sense until you need it. Have you ever heard someone say, Well, I don't care if the government is tapping my phone. I don't have anything to hide or something similar. Here's the blunt reality. Whoever says something like that is either lying, dumb, intellectually lazy, or the most boring person on the face of the planet. Probably the third one. Let me rephrase. Whoever says that may not be dumb or intellectually lazy, but they are certainly saying something dumb and not very astute. Our constitution... Our constitutional protections keep individuals, all individuals in theory, from being harassed or illegally searched. Essentially, it means that law enforcement can't just show up, flash a badge, and search your house or your business or your person or your phone without reasonable suspicion and or a warrant. This is a big deal and very different from what the 1870s colonists dealt with when British soldiers came a-knockin'. This is a very simple interpretation. Again, attorneys make big bucks and big careers interpreting this specific amendment. So there's lots of exceptions and explanations. For example, it's much easier, legally speaking, for police to stop and search your car than it is for them to show up on your doorstep and search your house. You should probably go read Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers. He talks about some of this and different theories and approaches to police stopping motorists and how it relates to location. I highly recommend Next week, or soon, in a, in an upcoming episode, we'll talk about amendments five to ten, and as well as some of my other uh, favorite ones. I don't talk down to people. I might not always make sense. I might be confusing. I might ramble on and on and take a lot of side roads and tangents and things like that. But I don't talk down to people. I would love to know that the audience listening to this is made up of a diversity of ages, from young to old. I don't always know who will connect with what section or topic. Uh, I try to make sure that the the words that I'm using are comfortable and not off-putting or insensitive or disrespectful um, on the basis of age. Um, I make no apologies for some of the opinions I express in terms of um, maybe politics. Um, some of those things. I am a person of faith. I am also a person who loves science, and I am a person who feels strongly about um, the current administration in the United States, not representing a type of Christianity that I support or I'm comfortable with. So, that may be off-putting to some listeners, and I am sorry I am not sorry for having the thoughts that I do, but I am sorry if I don't always express those thoughts in a respectful way that keeps you engaged and wanting to listen. Um, Feel free to contact me if you have diverging thoughts or supportive ones as well are also welcome. So as we move into science... Um, That was my ultra-long prologue to say, you're not looking at my face right now as I'm talking. And I would recommend that if you're on your phone or computer, that you just look up a picture of the dude from The Big Lebowski. I'm not recommending that every age go watch or listen to The Big Lebowski. I'm merely recommending that if you're going to listen to what I'm about to say regarding stars in this part of today's episode, then you might find it interesting and entertaining to simply look up a picture of the dude, played by Jeff Bridges from The Big Lebowski, and just look at a picture of him while I am sharing some of my thoughts and things that I've learned about stars. For some reason, I just find this idea grand. I'm not going to even try to talk in the dude's voice because that's just not my thing. I, I don't have a gift for voices like one of my brothers does or, or many other people. I'm just going to talk in my own voice, which is mine. Um, but also imagine that the dude from the Big Lebowski is uh, is narrating this. So a star is simply a space object that sends out energy in the form of heat and light and is made up of gas and dust that is attracted to each other by the force of… gravity. As dust and gas get closer together, temperatures in the star's core get so hot that the nuclei of the atoms begin to fuse together. Two hydrogen atoms combine to form a helium atom. This reaction is called nuclear fusion and creates an enormous amount of energy. This energy is transmitted throughout space in different wavelengths of light that we call electromagnetic energy. Now, I'm going to divide up this episode of stars into uh, this week as well as our next episode. So this week, I'm going to focus just on the life of a star. So are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. The life of a star, birth to death, and oh, what a glorious event a star's death can be. Number one, nebula. Picture this, a little cloud of dust and gas, which is a nebula, floating through space. Gravity gently, violently, inevitably pulls them together as time passes. It gets smaller as gravity does her number, a process called condensing. At this point, the condensing nebula becomes a protostar. The second part is that nuclear fusion I was just referring to. The nebula is getting smaller. It's getting hotter and hotter until it's so hot that the process of changing from hydrogen to helium begins. Boom. This fusion releases energy in the form of light and heat, which forms a star. Number three, a main sequence star is where the fusion creates an outward pressure that counterbalances gravity's force that is pulling it inward. This fusion continues as long as the hydrogen at its core is fueling it. A star needs fuel. That's a pretty simple way to put it. Could be a few million years, could be several billion years, who knows. The life of a star depends a lot on its size. Number four, giant slash supergiant. A medium-sized star converts its hydrogen to helium, which remember is fueling its energy. As it starts to run out, it begins cooling. The cooling reduces the outward pressure from the fusion, causing the core to contract, to get smaller. As the core contracts, its temperature increases, and the outer layers expand, they cool and they get broken off into space. A star at this phase is called a giant. That was a medium-sized star. A big-sized star does the same sort of thing, except instead of forming a giant at the end, it forms a... This is one of the great phrases in astronomy. Instead of it forming a giant at the end, it forms a supergiant. When the core of a supergiant becomes insanely hot... From getting so compressed, guess what? It starts the fusion reaction. At this point, a giant becomes a white dwarf. After a giant's helium is gone, what remains is a super dense hot core. That's what we call a white dwarf. When it cools down and no longer emits light, it's called a black dwarf. A supergiant becomes a supernova. Here's how that works. Remember, a supergiant is a gigantic star. When it compresses, it compresses fast, and its core temperatures get really, really hot. Large elements begin to fuse in the core, which form heavier elements, such as iron. Iron can't release energy via fusion, so that iron makes the core collapse, collapse violently. That collapse sends shockwaves throughout the star and creates a massive explosion of light called a supernova. After the supernova collapses on itself, it contracts into a super-duper dense ball, a neutron star, because neutrons are the only thing that can exist at its core. This causes smaller supernovas to form because neutrons can resist gravity's force that's pulling the supernova together. In supersized supernovas, gravity is so powerful that nothing can prevent it from collapsing. Gravity sucks everything in. Everything, including light. You know what's coming next. We call this a black hole. Wow. Now, super cool part coming up. When gas and dust get thrown off a star, it starts to form new nebulas. In other words... The process starts all over again. Wow and wow. Next week, we're going to pick up with Starlight. Feast on that. For religion, we've been talking about Judaism, and we are on chapter 5, which I call Exodus. Might sound familiar to some. Like Abraham, the Bible's first truly complex and flawed hero, Moses, was a herder and thinker. He thought a lot about his people who were in bondage. The more he thought, the more he became convinced that it was wrong that he be free while his people were enslaved. He left his wife and children temporarily and headed to Egypt to whatever is the opposite of a triumphant return. His brother Aaron accompanied him. Somehow they got an audience with the king, a.k.a. Pharaoh, and demanded the Hebrews be released from slavery. Let my people go, Moses commanded This demand was not received with joy or acquiescence, despite Moses assuring the Pharaoh that the true Lord God of the Hebrews was backing them. Pharaoh took great delight in listing off the Egyptian gods and reminding Moses of how puny his one God was in comparison to their many. The situation escalated, and there were various demonstrations of power, some involving blood and rivers and others involving frogs and flies and hail and darkness. These were known as the plagues. There were nine of them, and they were all either gross or annoying or terrifying or sad or all of these things, but then there was one more, and it was a tragic one. Remember the historical context of Moses' birth, the Hebrew boys being killed? The last plague is what we refer to as coming full circle, or as I like to call it, bookending. It's one of my favorite narrative devices ever, and pretty much all the best stories involve some use of it. And Pharaoh still refused to budge up until this last plague. The last plague came down to this. The death of the firstborn. Tragic. Absolutely tragic. But finally, the Pharaoh bent. Go. The Hebrews, prepared to exodus, left. Left for the promised land, Canaan. Canaan, according to my buddy at Wikipedia, is present-day Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Israel. But the Egyptian drama wasn't over. Sometimes powerful leaders change their minds, and sometimes this is a good thing. Other times it is not a good thing. Pharaoh changed his mind about letting them go and sent his army to bring their freed slaves back. And thus ensued great terror— as the Hebrews' emotions continued to seesaw, Initial exultation at escaping from bondage turned to terror as they found themselves trapped between the approaching army and the Red Sea. In the book of Exodus, which coincidentally is about an exodus, we find one of the great cinematic descriptions of Deus Ex Machina in history. As a side note, Deus Ex Machina is a storytelling device invented by the Greeks and later stolen by everyone else. This happened a lot that means God from a machine. But the interesting part is its figurative meaning, which is basically the idea that if a character in a story is trapped and something terrible is about to happen, then the author can quickly write a solution to rescue them, God pulling the strings. The story in Exodus of the Hebrews escaping from the Egyptian army is one of the greatest examples of deus ex machina. In this case, deus ex machina is literal and figurative. They are literally rescued by God parting the waters, letting them through, and then drowning the Egyptian army as they attempted to follow. Awesome story. I don't want to express happiness at others' misfortune. The Germans, as my daughter would say, would call this schadenfreude. But it's hard to not be clapping in giddiness at the karmic coolness of the Egyptian slave masters coming what they had coming to them. But those foot soldiers had wives and children, too. Yeah, sad. There's a lot of stories in the Old Testament that sound really happy, and then you think from the perspective of some of the more tragic figures, and it gets a little sad. So, the Hebrews are out of Egypt and free from the Egyptians. Home free? Nope. Again, Exodus, the second book of the Torah, describes the grumbling people wandering through the desert for 40 years and frequently reminiscing about the good old days of slavery. A key moment is at Mount Sinai, where Moses hikes up for 40 days and comes down with the Ten Commandments of Jehovah, which he brings back to the people who were waxing nostalgic for the old Egyptian idols. Moses delivers these to the people, and here's the thing. Most of them weren't necessarily new. Other civilizations had a lot of the same ideas about these things. Don't murder, don't steal, don't like other people's wives, stuff like that. But there were two commandments that were different than anything they had known before. Number one— As slaves, the Hebrews had worked seven days a week, every day of the year. And now, here was a commandment, the fourth one, telling them to rest every seventh day. This was a new concept. Don't work. Rest on this day, once a week. Number two, the first commandment said, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. Why is this so different? It's not saying specifically here that Jehovah is the only God. It's saying that the children of Israel should swear allegiance to no God but Jehovah. It was an agreement, a serious agreement called a covenant between Jehovah and the Israelites. They would be his chosen people, and he would be their only God. So they got some of this stuff worked out and kept heading north toward Jordan, and beyond that, Canaan, a.k.a. the Promised Land. Next episode, we'll pick up Chapter 6, Rise of the United Kingdom. Just hitting the one-hour mark, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up. I would love for you to come back for next episode, have some stories, uh, actually a fairy tale that, that I wrote that, you know, might be a little less heavy than some of the stuff we've covered this episode. But I would love for you to come back. Thank you for being here. I hope that as uh, things are starting to reopen uh across the United States of America um I'm not touching any of the politics or i or thoughts on that right now but regardless of where you live in this country or any other country I hope that you are doing well and staying well and thank you so much for listening I would love to hear from you this podcast this is the long version is on Apple's podcast store now yay I would love it if you would subscribe and leave a nice review and or rating it would be wonderful. In the meantime, please take a listen to Jeremy M. Long, to my sister Lanessa Long, and to Mates of State, who whom I have never met in person, but I know they are just wonderful people and musicians, and you should definitely go find them as well on Instagram. Make your heart sing. The world keeps spinning around at this point regardless of what happens but you know what i think that when you add some wonderful joyful music and dancing into the mix then the world feels it too and there's just a little extra dance and in her step or rather revolution spinning around so anyway i'm gonna say goodbye you can always go to verylongchronicles.com if you feel like reading stuff there as well in the meantime play hard make stuff be kind oh, no, not quite done. I got to say something about my brother Johnny who called me a couple days ago regarding my daughter, his niece, and said, would it be okay if I had Mockingjay, the third installment of The Hunger Games, uh, sent to her? So if you could have seen the look of delight on her face when UPS showed up in our driveway and left that for today, then your heart would still be grinning as well. I would like to thank him and his wife, Melani, for a lovely little gift that brought a great amount of joy to her face. And I mean, of course, I'm mad at her now, um, so I'm not going to let her read it for another 15 years or so. But uh, just know that she had so much joy when she actually received it. So anyway, that's the wrap up. Thank you. Play hard. Make stuff. Be kind. Until next, Joseph out. (laughs)